Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan is going to be discussing Genesis chapter 40 and Joseph and the Roundhouse. As always, we do encourage you to check out those show notes. Specifically, give us a follow on YouTube. We are currently running a short series on psalm singing with Alistair Roberts. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening. We do hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 40. The 40th chapter of Genesis is a very familiar story. And we'll begin by reading it in the Fox translation and probably have a short lesson today. And after these events it was that the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt fell afoul of their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh became infuriated with his two officials, with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he placed them in custody in the house of the chief of the guard, in the round house, the place where Yosef was imprisoned. And the chief of the guard, this is Potiphar, of course, appointed Yosef for them, and he waited upon them. And they were in custody for many days. And the two of them dreamt a dream, each man his own dream, in a single night, each man according to his dream's interpretation, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were imprisoned in the round house. And Yosef came to them in the morning, and he saw them, and behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in custody in the house of his lord, saying, Why are your faces in such ill humor today? And they said to him, We have dreamt a dream, and there is no interpreter for it. And Yosef said to them, Are not interpretations from God? Pray recount them to me. And the chief cupbearer recounted his dream to Yosef, and he said to him, In my dream, behold, a vine was in front of me, and on the vine three winding tendrils, and just as it was budding, the blossom came up, and its clusters ripened into grapes, and Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I picked the grapes, and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup in Pharaoh's palm. And Yosef said to him, This is its interpretation. The three windings are three days. In another three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and he will restore you to your position so that you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, according to your former practice, when you were his cupbearer. But bear me in mind with you when it goes well with you. Pray deal kindly with me and call me to mind to Pharaoh, so that you have brought me out of this house. For I was stolen, yes, stolen from the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should have put me in this pit. Now when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted for good, he said to Yosef, I also in my dream... And behold, three baskets of white bread were on my head, and in the uppermost basket all sorts of edibles for Pharaoh, baker's work. And birds were eating them from the basket from off my head. And Yosef gave answer, and he said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In another three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from off of you, and he will impale you on a stake, or hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from off of you. And thus it was, on the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, 
that he made a great drinking feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker amidst his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his cupbearership, so that he put the cup in Pharaoh's palm. But the chief baker he hanged, just as Yosef had interpreted to them. But the chief cupbearer did not keep Yosef in mind. He forgot him. This is one of those stories that's so familiar that it's difficult to break through our picture of what is going on and maybe think about it in a larger context. But when I preach this, I like to tell the children that the Pharaoh was hungry and he wanted donuts and the baker didn't bring him good donuts, so he got thrown in prison and so he thought he'd drown his sorrows and the cupbearer brought him sour wine, so he got mad and threw him in prison. But since Pharaoh was going to have a birthday, he had to do something by the time the birthday came along and that's the end of the story. You can't have a birthday without birthday cake. And if you're grown up, you probably have some wine or beer or something at your birthday too. Well, that's maybe a slight fraction of it. But the rest of this story shows us who the chief baker would have been. He would have been the secretary of agriculture in Egypt. And Egypt was a tremendous bread-producing country in the ancient Near East. Every year the Nile River floods out and puts wonderfully rich dirt all over the place and then the people come back from the hills and plant all along in this alluvial plain and tremendously good grain grows up there. This will be important in the very next thing that happens because this system is going to fail for seven years. But ordinarily Egypt is something of a breadbasket. And the Egyptians were experts in bread. We know that they had about 55 or 60 different varieties of bread that they made. Even here in this passage, when it says that the baker dreamed that there were baskets of white bread on his head, scholars aren't sure exactly what that means. probably doesn't mean exactly what we call wonder bread or something, white bread white bread, but it was very fine bread compared to the coarse black bread that people usually had around the ancient world, and we know this probably means pastries, so a birthday cake is not too far off. The Egyptians made bread in little pyramid shapes and little sphinx shapes, and they made them with dates and raisins and honey inside of them like a cream-filled donut, only it would be honey-filled donut. They made all kinds of bread like that, and they knew something that nobody else in the ancient world knew very well. They knew the secret of yeast. They knew how to make bread rise and become big and fluffy. Other people knew about leaven, but they weren't able to make leaven work very well in the ancient world. So bread tended to be kind of flat and hard. Certainly was important for living, but it wasn't like Egyptian bread. Egyptian bread really was wonder bread. And we know also, I know a lot about this from doing my dissertation on food in the Bible, that when sailors put into port after being at sea for several months, the first place they go is to a bar to have some alcohol. Except when they went to Egypt, we know that they went to the bakery first because Egyptian bread and pastries were so good that they wanted to have them. And the only place you could get them was Egypt. You couldn't transport them anywhere. I mean, how long does bread last? You bake it, you eat it. In a couple of days, it's not going to be good. It's going to be stale. 
especially if it's just plain bread and you haven't added any preservatives or anything to it. So the Egyptians were known for bread. This man, being the chief baker, would have been basically in charge. Let's start with what he would have been in charge of. He would have been in charge of the bread that was served to Pharaoh. But what does that mean? Well, that means he's got to supervise all of the bread making that goes on, and he's got to supervise the agriculture of the land, and he's probably going to have a guard of the secret of yeast. So this is a very important person, and he is about to lose his position, and somebody else is going to take it for a while, but of course eventually Joseph becomes the chief baker. Similarly with the cupbearer, we know less from the text of what a cupbearer would do, but we do know from the ancient world that the person who served wine to the king was not some poor wretched slave who had to taste the wine first each time to make sure the king wasn't going to be poisoned. They may have had some poor wretched slave to do that, but the cupbearer was a man who was right there next to the king and served him wine. Nehemiah was one of those, and Nehemiah was, of course, one of the chief officials in the retinue of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Joseph becomes the chief cupbearer, and in chapter 44, there's some description of it. Chapter 44, verse 2, Joseph says, My goblet, or cup, the silver cup, put in the mouth of the youngest's pack, along with the silver for his rations. Now this is, of course, when he's sending the men back, and he puts the cup in Benjamin's sack. And then he tells the steward, Pursue the men, and... Ask them this, verse 5, Is not this the cup that my Lord drinks from? And he also divines, yes, divines with it. Now what does that mean? That he practiced magic? That he had been to Hogwarts and learned how to be a magician? No. Divine there just means advise, give real advice to the king. So he's an important official. There are even some who suggest that on the basis of some evidence from the ancient world that these cups on the outside of the cup were symbols of the world and that a cupbearer might be an expert in international relations. I like that because that means that the secretary of overall the domestic affairs and the secretary of overall the international affairs, these two men, and that they're the ones in prison. It, it makes a nice model, whether it's true or not. Can't know for sure. It is true that Joseph becomes both the baker and the butler, or cupbearer. And what this tells us is, essentially, the Pharaoh is looking for better bread and better wine. That's where we would go with this in a sermon. The Pharaoh is looking for better bread and better wine, and he isn't finding it yet. In the next chapter, we're going to find out that he not only needs better bread and better wine, he needs better priests and better wise men, and he's going to find all four of them when he finds Joseph. Joseph will provide better bread, better wine. Joseph will be a better priest and a better wise man than any that the Pharaoh has. And the reason is, as we'll see again in the next chapter, Pharaoh needs better gods because his gods are about to fail. The Nile and the sun, which are the two chief gods, they are about to fail, and he needs a better god, and when he finds Joseph, he will also be introduced to the true God. So all of this is along the way of bringing blessing to the Egyptians. We're back to the Abrahamic covenant, if I can remind you again. Through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Joseph has already been a blessing in the Potiphar's house. Now he is going to be a blessing to the entire nation. 
It's as if the presence of Joseph in this land causes God to begin to act. And now God is going to act to save these Egyptians. And the Egyptian nation will be converted and enter into the kingdom as a result of Joseph and what God is doing. So behind the scenes, God is troubling this Pharaoh. And maybe he's a young Pharaoh. Maybe he's Joseph's age. I don't know. But however old he is, he's not satisfied with the bread and wine he has. Of course, we get better bread and wine today in the covenant, and that's the larger model that this is referring to. So here we are, these two officials, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, fell afoul of their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh became infuriated, angry, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker with his two officials. He placed them in custody in the house of the chief of the guard. That's Potiphar's house. One commentator said, okay, then they must have actually been in Potiphar's house and Joseph was still in Potiphar's house and Joseph is in charge of them. Well, it goes on to say in the round house or dungeon house or jail, the place where Joseph was imprisoned, where he was kept captive. This probably means that this prison, the country club prison, is probably right next to Potiphar's own house. It's probably something he maintains. It's clear he maintains that he's in charge of it. And he's still seeing Joseph from time to time, because in verse 4 it says, The chief of the guard, that's Potiphar, Potiphar appointed Joseph over them, and he waited on them. So among the things that Joseph is supposed to do, being in charge of the jail, is to take charge of these guys. And because they are very important palace officials, he needs to make sure that they're kept happy. After all, put yourself in Potiphar's shoes. Potiphar is an important palace official also. He's in charge of the palace guard. But he knows these guys. I mean, they've been at court together. When Potiphar goes to court to see the Pharaoh, there's the chief baker and the chief butler. I mean, they're all part of the retinue of the Pharaoh here. These guys all know each other. They play golf together. They're members of the cabinet. So not only that, but you don't want to make them mad. Potiphar's got enough troubles with his horrible wife, and he doesn't need to make these two guys mad. Pharaoh's mad at him, but he's going to take good care of them, and he knows there's nobody better than Joseph to take care of them. So Joseph is going to make sure that they are taken care of. If they would like bacon and eggs for breakfast, then Joseph will see to it that they have bacon and eggs. And if they want some videos to watch, he'll go check them out for them. Well, he won't go anywhere. He can't leave, but he'll see to it. Whatever. And it says they were in custody for many days. So this is for a while. But we're coming up on something that's invisible to us until we get to the revelation at the end of the chapter that Pharaoh's birthday is coming up, you see. It's several months away, but it's coming up. And when you have a birthday, then at the very least, you want to have bread and wine on your birthday. But more than that, if you're an important government official and you're going to have a public official celebration of your birthday, you need your courtiers present. So it would be difficult to have a celebration in a highly ritualistic culture and have no baker and no cupbearer present. All the other officials are there the chief mugwump, and all the other people are there, and no chief baker, no secretary of agriculture, no chief advisor, no king's friend, whatever the cupbearer is, they're absent. They're still in jail. That puts a pall on the event. 
And if it's an important ritual event connected to the gods, and everything in Egypt was a ritual event connected to the gods, then you have to have these people back in place. you got to have somebody in these slots. For all I know, and it's likely to be the case, that Pharaoh's court is a reproduction of the heavenly court, and Pharaoh himself is the sun. We all know that. You know that the Pharaoh is supposed to be a visible presence of the sun god on earth. That's why he has this golden collar that shines out around his neck. And in the Ten Commandments, he's got this white hat on to make him look like the sun, because he is he's the sun on the earth. Well, if he's the sun, these other courtiers are the planets. This is true in Persia. It's true in many of these ancient courts. They're either planets or they're the other gods. They each have characteristics. And when the court assembles for an official event, you got to have Pharaoh, and you've got to have Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and Venus, and the other planets have got to be there too. Whatever this court looks like, you can't have people missing. And Joseph knows that. That's why when they have these dreams and they see three baskets of bread, three vines, he knows there are three days. Why? Because in three days Pharaoh has a birthday, and everybody knows this problem has got to be resolved in three days. It's just like... Our election here, there are some dates coming up, like Inauguration Day, and by that day, we got to have a president. So there's only so much time. We know that by Inauguration Day in January, the problem of who's going to be the next president will finally have been settled by that time. It'll have to have been. So they're there for a while, but there is a day of judgment coming. Something has to happen. And then verse 5 It says, the two of them dreamt a dream, each man his own dream in a single night. Now, this is the second pair of dreams. Joseph had a pair of dreams. These are two dreams in one night to two different people. Three years from now, Pharaoh will have two dreams in one night, one man in two dreams. So these doubling of dreams are to say that something is certain. And Joseph explains that to Pharaoh later on. He says the fact that there are two dreams means that it is certain. It's a testimony of two witnesses. Well, you've got two different men here, but the dreams are the same. One is the mirror image of the other. And so that makes them certain. Each man has his dream. They remember these dreams. These are not dreams that fly away when you wake up. How does Watts put it? They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Well, these dreams did not fly forgotten at the opening of the day. If you ever had a dream like this, you'd know it was a special dream. Of course, we're not going to because we live in the New Covenant. We've got a finished Bible. But they knew. You couldn't help but know. So each man has a dream. Each man, according to his dream's interpretation, in other words, they knew that somehow these were dreams that needed to be deciphered. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were imprisoned in the round house. And now Joseph is going to evangelize them. Joseph came to them in the morning, and he saw them there, and behold, they were cast down. Faces were down. It's one of these broad terms in Hebrew. It could mean they were angry, they were depressed. It's obvious that they were not (laughs) as cheerful as they had been. They were cast down, dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in custody in the house of his lord, saying, it's interesting to me how this information is repeated here that we already know. And I don't understand why. I try to puzzle these things out, because there has to be a reason. He could have said he asked Pharaoh's officials, saying, why are your faces in such ill humor today? Instead, we're told 
the Pharaoh's officials were with him in custody. Well, we already know that. We've been told it about three times already, it seems like. In the house of his Lord, in Potiphar's house. Well, we've been told that a couple of times already, too. So it's repeated here. There is some relevance to the fact that they're in Potiphar's custody here when this conversation takes place. But exactly why that's important, what larger pattern that fits with, I'm not sure. But I'll just point it out to you. It's one of these things here. He asked them, why are your faces cast down today? And they said to him, we've dreamt a dream. There's no interpreter for it. And Joseph said to them, are not interpretations from God? Okay, this is the second time Joseph has brought up God. He doesn't say Yahweh, Jehovah, because he's in Gentile territory, but he uses the word Elohim, which is the name they would know, the ultimate creator God. I think that they would have had a word for the God behind all the others. But the pagans don't believe that you can hear from this God. It is a myth to think that in the pagan world you've got polytheists and monotheists. That some of them believe in just one God and others believe in many gods. All religions believe in one God and many gods. They believe in one supreme God and a lot of little gods. They all believe that. The problem is the one supreme God is unknowable. He's the founder of everything, or it is. You can't talk to him. He doesn't talk. You can't have any access to him. He's the God behind the gods. And he doesn't talk. And you can't talk about him. You can't talk to him. You can't worship him or anything. But you got all these little gods out here, like the sun and the Nile, or like Baal and Asherah. Or in Muslim countries, you've got jinns, genies, and all these other spirits around. I mean, they're polytheists, essentially. Don't think Muslims are monotheists in any pure sense. They've got all these little gods out there, and you talk to them. The same pattern shows up in the darker forms of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. People say, well, I can't talk to God. My goodness, I'll talk to Mary. Jeff Myers was studying at Concordia Seminary, and we were discussing this online the other day. He said they had a Catholic priest from the Catholic Seminary come over and talk in their class. And he talked to them about various things, and they asked him about Mary. He said, well, he said, I certainly would not feel comfortable asking Jesus to do something for me. But I feel comfortable asking Mary to intercede with me for Jesus. And Myers said, well, let's just hope Mary wasn't like one of those Catholic school nuns that you had when you were a kid. Because <laughs> they were pretty tough. They weren't very sympathetic either. Well, that's an example. The tendency in the human mind is to push the true God back into a place where he doesn't talk, you can't talk to him, and you have all these little gods that you can talk to. And it uh, comes into Christianity. But it's definitely there in this. So they know that there's a God. What they don't know is that this God ever talks to anybody, that this God is jealous and says, don't have any other gods before me. Prefer me to all these other powers. These powers do exist. There are angels out there who run the world. There are strong men. There are traditions. There are forces in nature that are overwhelming. There are things that you need to placate. You better make sure that you plant your crop at a certain time and respect nature or you're not going to have any food. 
So these powers and other things do exist, but they must never be put on the same level as the true Creator God. Don't have any other gods before me, and I'm the real God, and I talk to you, and I want you to talk to me. Don't talk to them. Well, in the last chapter, we saw that when Potiphar's wife tried to get Joseph, he said this would be sinning against God. He uses this name as if he knows who this God is, as if he has some information about this mysterious God behind them all, the ultimate God. Now he does it again. Are not interpretations from God? Well, how would you know? You remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul comes and he says, you've got a statue here to the unknown God, the God who doesn't speak, the God who doesn't have a face, the God who doesn't have a name, the God who's behind all the rest. He says, he's the one I'm here to tell you about. All the rest are just garbage. This is the only one that's real, and you don't even understand him right, because he does talk, and he does have a name. He's not unknown. And he has revealed himself among the Jews, and now he's revealing himself among me, says Paul. I'm here to tell you about him. Well, that's who this is, and in the very next chapter, he's going to do the same thing when he stands before Pharaoh. He'll tell Pharaoh, God has told Pharaoh what to do. The God who's behind all the rest, the God that you thought didn't ever talk who was an impersonal force that started everything up. Have you ever looked at Bullfinch's mythology or any of the books about the ancient Roman and Greek gods? You know that there's a genealogy. Zeus is the son of Saturn. And Saturn is the son of somebody else. Kronos? I forget. That means time. Well, you go on back and you've got this monad that everything kind of evolved out of. It's completely unknown. That's the same thing. Now, Joseph is saying, this is a God who talks, talks to me, <laughs> and I'll tell you what he says. So tell me about your dreams. So he's evangelizing these people. I think we have to say that there would have been some conversation here at some point about how Joseph can claim to have any knowledge of the supreme deity, ultimate being, who is not only different from all their other familiar Egyptian gods, but the one that they suspect is behind them all. Well... Now we have the cupbearer's dream. Not a lot of complications here. Notice all the threes here, though. This is kind of a rhythmical threefold dream. Chief cupbearer recounted his dream to Joseph, and he said to him, In my dream, behold, a vine in front of me. And on the vine, three tendrils, three winding branches. And just as it was budding, the blossom came up, and its clusters ripened into grapes, like one of these time-lapse photography things. He sees all this happen like the way the Garden of Eden was made in the beginning. In a half an hour, everything grows up, and there it is. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. Boing, there, suddenly there's a cup in my hand. And I picked the grapes, and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup in Pharaoh's palm. Nice little threefold, three verbs there. I picked, I squeezed, I put. The word Pharaoh occurs three times here. Pharaoh's cup, Pharaoh's cup, Pharaoh's palm. Put that in there. So... Joseph says to him, this is his interpretation, three windings of three days. Duh, we've got a birthday coming up in three days, so this isn't too tough. In another three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and he will restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, according to the former practice when you were his cupbearer. So, Joseph uses this expression, Pharaoh will lift up your head. The commentators, some have suggested that this means Pharaoh will hear your case. Your case will be brought to court. And that's what it means in both of these situations. Pharaoh will hear your case and he will restore you. And then with the baker, 
Pharaoh will lift up your head. Pharaoh will hear your case against you from off of you. The problem is it doesn't really work, and there's not that much evidence for that interpretation of this phrase. It seems to me just what it says. Your head, which is cast down now, your face is cast down, your faces are dejected, your head is cast down, it will be lifted up. Kind of an obvious idiom for being restored to his position. And then Joseph appeals to him, says, Please keep me in mind with you when it goes well for you. Pray deal kindly with me and call me to mind to Pharaoh so that you have brought me out of this house. Not real clear in the English translation, but call me in mind to Pharaoh so that you will help me get out of here. Well, I think there's some implications here. Call me to mind to Pharaoh. That's a rather bold request if Joseph is a nobody. I suspect Joseph was known at court. If he was Potiphar's right-hand man and Potiphar's captain of the bodyguard, of the king's palace guard, then I think they knew who Joseph was. These men probably already knew who Joseph was when they got to prison. They'd seen him around. He probably carried messages to him from Potiphar in the past. And it's possible that Pharaoh knew who he was. So he is able to say, look... When you go to Pharaoh, remind him, you know, that I'm stuck down here in this jail here, and it's really not fair. This is all a false charge, and Potiphar's done the best he can for me, but I'd like to get out of here. Please bring my case before the Pharaoh. Joseph may even have known the Pharaoh, or known who he was, been close enough. Pharaoh doesn't seem to know exactly who Joseph is in the next chapter, but he's close enough to the top of the power chain to make this kind of request. Call me in mind to Pharaoh and help me get out of here. And Joseph says, after all, I've been taking care of you. And please do that. Then he explains further, I was stolen, stolen from the land of the Hebrews, kidnapped. That's ultimately true. His brothers kidnapped him and sold him. So the language is inaccurate. And here, too, I've done nothing that they should put me in the pit. Well, not literally. This isn't a pit. We've already seen that. It's the roundhouse. It's not underground. But the word pit is used here to remind us that he was earlier on put into a pit by his brothers, and this is a similar situation. Nowhere near as bad, but he's still been cast down. And so the writer, Joseph, wants us to think back to the earlier pit that he was been in and to see the parallel between the two, which is kind of obvious anyway. Well, the baker is encouraged, after all. So now he wants to hear about his dream. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted for good, he said to Joseph, I too in my dream, and behold, three baskets of white bread on my head, or of donuts, of pastries. Pastries is a likely translation for this, but we don't know for sure. Really good stuff. In the uppermost basket, all sorts of edibles for Pharaoh. Baker's work. Professional, good stuff that Pharaoh likes. Pharaoh likes uh, little pyramid-shaped breads uh, stuffed with dates and raisins. That's what's on top here, the kind of Pharaoh likes. Birds were eating them from the basket from off my head. Well, what could this mean? Well, maybe it means that Pharaoh's going to be eating them, and Pharaoh is the bird. That's what you want to think, if you're the baker. I'll be restored too, and I'll be feeding to the divine Pharaoh who is a bird who's going to come and eat this food off my head. But unfortunately for the baker, that's not what the dream means. 
Joseph knows what the dream means. Joseph can interpret the symbolism because Joseph knows what birds coming down and eating something means. And he knows that because he grew up in Jacob's household and he heard about Abraham's dream. And in chapter 15, Abraham has a dream and he cuts the animals in half. And while the animals are cut in half, birds came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Birds coming down on things and eating them is a sign of death and of destruction. So Joseph knows what that means. So he has to give an honest reply here. Joseph gave answer, and he said this is its interpretation. Three baskets are three days. In another three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you, and he will hang you on a tree, and birds will eat your flesh from off of you. So you've got three days to make it right with God, because you only got three days to live. A couple of things here. The big debate on this verse is, what's going on here? Pharaoh will take your head off of you and hang you. Well, that's not possible if you're being hung from the neck and your head's been cut off. So, what does it mean? One interpretation is the expression, take your head off of you, is a general statement that you're going to die, and the specific is that you're going to be hanged, strung up by the neck on a tree. The other is that he's going to be beheaded, and then his body is going to be nailed up or impaled on a post. Since it says on a tree that the head will be stuck on a post, or his body will be stuck on a post. Either way, maybe both. He did this kind of thing back in the old days. Cut somebody's head off and put it on a post. Jam it into a stake for everybody to see. Or even stick his whole body on it and let the birds eat it off. That's why when I read it, instead of reading hang you on a tree, I read impale you on a post. The difficulty with that is that hang doesn't seem to mean impale in the Bible very much. But it is true that what the Bible means by hanging is not what they did in the Old West or anywhere else, hanging people up by the neck. Hanging means somebody is killed and then their body is put up for birds and animals to eat or publicly displayed. If you put somebody to death and you hang them up to display their body, you will take them down before sundown is what the law says. It does not mean that their bodies were hung up while they were still alive. Now, crucifixion, you get something more sophisticated where a person is hanged up while they're still alive. But in the Old Testament times, and the meaning of hanging is not to hang a living person until he dies, but to kill him and then put his body up, nail it up somewhere, hang it up somewhere. So impaling could very well be what's implied. We don't know. But at any rate, this guy is going to lose his head. His head is going to be lifted up too, but in the opposite sense. He's not going to be restored to his headship, his position Rather, he's going to lose his head altogether. So, both of these dreams come true, and the cupbearer might have remembered Joseph, but he forgets him, but he remembers him later on. He remembers that there was somebody who could interpret these dreams. And so, in verses 20 to 23, we get to the denouement. Thus it came to pass on the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a great drinking feast for all his servants. That seems to be the implication of the Hebrew word there, not just feast, but a feast of wine. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, and he lifted up the head of the chief baker amidst his servants. 
He restored the chief cupbearer to his cupbearership so that he put the cup in Pharaoh's palm. But the chief baker he hanged just as Joseph had interpreted to them. It's rather interesting. I mean, you think, it well, isn't this clever the way this is written? Both of these men, the same thing happens to, but they're reverses. But in a sense, that's limited atonement, isn't it? God is going to deal with all of humanity, and some will be saved, and some will be damned because of his decision and their choices. And in a sense, they're all going to wind up at the same judgment seat. They're all going to spend eternity in the presence of God, but some people are going to like it and some people aren't. Some people are going to be in a lake of fire that is right in front of the throne of God. They aren't going to like that, but they'll be there. So, in a sense, everybody has the same destiny, and yet that same destiny has two sides. So that's, I think, part of the background for the way this is written, this duality here. He could also probably, if we wanted to, think back to Jacob and Esau and the idea of twins, and one being a mirror twin, evil twin. We have a twin situation here. One is judged, one is not. God's decisions, Pharaoh's decisions, all something that is part of reality and part of the way Genesis is written. But the chief cupbearer did not bear Joseph in mind and forgot him. So we continue on that at the end of two years' time, in the third year now, not the third day, Pharaoh has dreams. And Joseph will have to interpret them as well and talk about God to Pharaoh. But we'll do that next week. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.